when my wife and I were away and, um, and she was speaking at that conference and I was speaking to pastors, we went out one night and we saw this couple and they had two baby strollers and to our shock, there was a dog in each stroller. And I said, we got to get a picture of this. You know, they're all dressed up and we kind of admired their dogs. And then they were kind of talking to the dogs, trying to get the dogs to say hi to us like they were people. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are near the end of our study in the Revelation, and yesterday we began a message entitled, The Coming Heavenly Kingdom, from chapter 22, verses 13 to 15. In this passage, we've been reminded that Jesus' return will be quick. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that even at the end of the Bible, God makes it clear that salvation is based on belief in the saving power of Jesus' shed blood alone and not on anything we can do on our own. So here in verse 14, he's making it crystal clear. Don't miss the context. He's coming quickly. People will be fixed in their rottenness or in their righteousness because he has the authority to judge according to their deeds. How does he have that authority? Because he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. And on what basis will he judge people? Based on the way they are associated to the Messiah. Look at verse 14 now. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Please underscore in your thinking, only those who have washed their robes by faith in the blood of Christ will have access to the tree of life. They're not saved by how good they wash their robes, but they are saved by the fact that they came to the Lamb. Now, if you're using the King James, it renders it just a little bit differently. Understand, too, in the last chapter of the Bible, when the King James was done, they had a lot of verses that they didn't have in Greek. All they had was a fourth-century Latin translation. And that's why in the original preface of the King James, that they said, we have limited manuscripts, but we're finding new manuscripts all the time that elucidate what God is saying. The challenge sometimes is, is that scribal note something that somebody in modern-day language put out in the margin, or was that inspired? And of course, in 1611, they came out with the 1611A version, and the process of getting it out, they found more manuscripts, and then they came out with the 1611B version. And then they came out in 1613, and so on. And the old King James today is the 1738 translation, because a lot of words were changing so fast. But let me read the King James here. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Now, on the one hand, you could argue those who do his commandments, the emphasis is on a changed life. And those who are changed from the inside out show that by their deeds, they have a right to the tree of life. Whereas the best manuscripts argue those who have washed their robes. Well, how do you wash your robes? Is it something you do? No, it is someone that you choose. And so let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so the New King James follows it correctly. They have washed their robes and made them white, Revelation 7, 14 says, in the blood of the Lamb. 
When you wash your robes in the revelation, you are acknowledging your need for the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. Now today, we think about getting blood on a robe and we think we have somehow defiled it, but not in the mind of a Jew, and especially these first century readers. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, it tells us that all things are cleansed with blood. Moses, speaking of the Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And so both the Old and the New Testaments often speak of blood as a symbol of life and cleansing. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. We think of blood simply just in terms of death, and that's one aspect to it. But the term blood is also used in Scripture of life and of purity. And so in Romans 5, 9, it says, We are justified by His blood, such that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. In Ephesians 1.17, it says, we have redemption, how? Through his blood. According to Colossians 1.20, Christ has made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. And even in the opening chapter of the Revelation, Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins, how? By his blood. Now, the fallen mind takes offense at the blood of Christ. They say that's the religion of the butcher shop. But it's precious to the believer because we recognize the only way we can be forgiven is through the blood of the Lamb. I meet people sometimes, I'm a diehard, dyed-in-the-wool Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian. Look, I don't care what you are. You need to be dyed in the blood of Christ or you will never see the living God. And there's only one way to have your robe cleaned, and that's through the blood of the Lamb. Look again at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Needs to be put in the context of the revelation of how robes are washed, not to mention the rest of the Bible. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, sometimes I am asked the question, is this a literal tree or a figurative tree? Did this tree actually exist or is it just symbolic of something? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it did literally exist and yes, it does symbolize something. Now, unless God is using a metaphorical expression or a figure of speech where he says, well, it's like this or it's like so-and-so, then applying the rules of Greek and Hebrew grammar, you just interpret it literally. Well, some have suggested that this is not a literal tree, but it's purely figurative, but that violates the rules of basic Hebrew and Greek grammar, not to mention the immediate context, not to mention the broader context of the whole of Scripture. I mean, contextually in Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, it's referring to a literal, actual tree. Now, when was this tree mentioned first in the Revelation? Back in chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus. And there he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what God at one point in human history forbade man to eat after he sinned, he now invites them to eat of and promises in paradise, one of the names for heaven, that we will eat of it. Now, you remember back in Genesis 3, 
when the tree is first mentioned, we're told, uh, oh, before we get to that, let me look at the last mention of the tree. It's found here in Revelation 22 and verse 2. It says, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So what's mentioned in Genesis is mentioned again here at the end of the Bible. Do you think this is a figurative tree? It is for the amillennialist who doesn't believe that God is going to literally pull off the book of Revelation and he has to spiritualize the whole book. John Calvin was one such person. He was so convoluted in so many realms of eschatology. We'll meet him in heaven, but he was confused on some issues. That's why he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation because he didn't know what to do with it. This is an actual tree. Remember in Genesis 3, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Now there's access to the tree is going to be lost. He knows good and evil. Did God want man to know good and evil like he did? Yes, like he did. By revelation, not by experience. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if Adam had passed the test of obedience and in his creaturely state of perfection in which God made him had eaten of the tree of life, he would have been forever sealed in that righteousness. This was not some kind of magic, but it was a choice that he had to make in his heart whether or not he was going to believe what God said. But of course, he chose not to believe. And so now after he has sinned, if he eats from the tree of life, he'll become like one of the angels, unredeemable. And so God places him out of the garden. He puts armed guards. They're called cherubim. In Hebrew, there's a singular, there's a dual, or there's three or more. God uses the dual in Hebrew. He's talking about two holy angels with a flaming sword of fire guarding the entrance so that man cannot come in. That's an expression of God's grace and God's mercy. And so here in Revelation 22 and verse 2 again, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for what? For the healing of the nations. So we discussed that there is this boulevard with a river running down the center and what appears to be a double trunk tree like a canopy coming across. And there's fruit that it produces every month. And again, another reminder, unlike one hymn that sometimes we sing when time will be no more, there is time in heaven. It's measured every single month. There's fruit that are produced. Now, occasionally I'm asked if we will eat in heaven. And of course, this text gives you the answer, among others. Jesus in his resurrected body literally ate. The angels, when they met with Abraham, literally ate. Um, We will eat at a great feast called the marriage supper of the lamb. And so, yes, we will eat in heaven, but you won't have to. And you won't get fat, ladies, in case you're interested. I mean, it's going to be magnificent. And it says it's here for the healing of the nations. There's going to be a, 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 a blessing that's associated that all of the spiritual, mental, emotional, physical 
hurts and sicknesses of our day will be forever gone. And among other things, I think it's a reminder of how secure we are. People occasionally have said, well, wait a minute. We get to heaven, how do we know we'll be there forever? Satan was once there as an unfallen angel, and he rebelled, and a third of his angels went with him. Well, I think among other things, God is underscoring that in heaven we will eat from this tree. I think he wants to highlight and put in red in your thinking that this is a place that we will be forever secure in. Not to mention security isn't found in a place, it's found in a person, and his name is Jesus. Now, that brings us to verse 15. There's those who are included, and then those who are excluded. You say, you're just on your second point. (laughs) I'm 95% done, so I'm just about done. Those who are excluded from the heavenly kingdom. Look now, if you will, at verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, based on what we studied in Revelation 21 and verse 8, to be outside is to have been confined to the lake of fire. Very similar list. Let me read that verse again. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, the list here of those who are outside the New Jerusalem are those people who, according to Revelation 21 and verse 8, they're in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Now, this is a slightly different list. In Revelation 22:15, from Revelation 21, 8, why is that? Because these are representative lists and not exhaustive lists. Let's look through the list. Outside are dogs. Now, we read that, and we may not catch its metaphorical underscoring because of our notion of a dog today. Uh, dogs today are almost like treated like royalty in some homes. <laughs> when my wife and I were away in um, and she was speaking at that conference and I was speaking to pastors, we went out one night and we saw this couple and they had two baby strollers, and to our shock, there was a dog in each stroller. And I said, we got to get a picture of this. You know, they're all dressed up, and we kind of admired their dogs, and then they were kind of talking to the dogs, trying to get the dogs to say hi to us like they were people. Well, there is a word for dog that can refer to a domesticated animal, and it's used that way in Matthew 15 of the Canaanite woman who talks about, well, even, even the dogs, you know, eat the crumbs that fall on the floor. That's the word for a domesticated dog. But virtually all dogs in the first century were not domesticated. They were scavengers. They searched the garbage in the streets to eat. And they did things in public that most people would hide. You know, every child sooner or later says, what are those dogs doing? What are they sniffing? You know, and uh, less than desirable functions that they do in public. And interestingly, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this same term is used to describe a homosexual in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 18. It's a substitute word for an abomination, something that's those who are abominable. Now, God loves everyone. Christ died for everyone. But to 
espouse homosexuality or even to say you're transgender, something that does not exist according to the Bible, is to deny God and all of his greatness as the creator and the way he made you. But we live in a culture where what God calls dog-like behavior, man wants to normalize. Then notice he speaks second on the list, sorcerers. That's the Greek word pharmakeia, or pharmakeos here, and we get our word pharmacy from it. And it's translated sorcery. Why? Because in the New Testament culture, the illicit use of drugs was associated with the occult. Every person I have ever met who got caught up in the occult, the entry level was drugs. It's not by accident. And we are absolutely nuts and need to have our heads examined where we want to legalize what God calls wicked. He's talking here about the illicit use of drugs. He associates it with sorcery. Notice who else is outside. He says the immoral persons. That's the word pornos, giving us our English word pornography. And the New Testament uses this word to describe those who promote and encourage any type of sexual activity outside of the bonds and blessings of marriage. It would include the fornicator, the adulterer, the rapist, the pedophile, the person who produces songs that wave a flag for this kind of behavior, People who make movies, and yes, people who even produce Super Bowl halftime shows. And I hope you didn't watch that. And I certainly hope as men you are protecting your children because Satan is after them. And then he mentions murderers. This is someone who takes an innocent life. It would certainly include the abortionists and would include those politicians who want to legalize this activity and promote this activity, and every single person running for president on the Democratic side is promoting the behavior of a dog, the behavior of an abortionist. This is not a political pulpit. It's a moral pulpit, and when there are moral issues involved, I will speak to them. Then he mentions the idolaters. This is someone who puts something or some activity or some behavior, maybe even themselves, above God. And then John adds, and everyone who loves and practices lying. In John 8, Satan is called the father of lying because his heart is filled with deception and with dishonesty. Everyone in this room, myself included, at some time we've told a lie. Or we've exaggerated something. But these who are outside are described with two different verbs. They love and they practice. The word phileo means there's an enjoyment, there's an affection that they have in lying. And they practice it, that is, it's their lifestyle. It's what they are about. And so God tells us that those who love and practice lying are outside of the kingdom. Now, remember, this is a representative list, and there are many throughout the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, 
nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Or in Galatians chapter 5, we find another representative list of those who are outside. They are immoral, impure, sensual. Then he speaks of those who are guilty of idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, reminding you the list is not complete. Or here in verse 15, outside are dogs, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. You're saying, Pastor Carl, you've condemned an awful lot of people to hell. No, I haven't condemned anyone. I'm just telling you what God wrote in his book. And every one of us is somewhere on these lists at some point in our life. The difference is forgiveness and a new birth. And with a birth from above, there's a new direction that comes with it. You say, well, who doesn't want to be forgiven? Jesus would say the one who cherishes sin and loves the darkness because they love their evil deeds, he says, they won't come to the light. We say agape love is God's love. That's only half the story. Those who love, it's the word agapao, agape, we anglicize it. They love willfully. Sin is their way of life because they've never been born from above. And of such people in John chapter 8, Jesus said, you will die in your sin, and where I am going, you cannot come. They will not go to heaven. They will be outside with those who burn in the lake of fire and brimstone. We studied it a few weeks back from Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform many miracles? So with this false profession, with this polite orthodoxy in which they call him Lord, Lord, and in spite of their false preaching and that they preached in his name and in spite of the false miracles that they did. And by the way, he never denies any of these things being possible by an unbeliever because each of these things an unbeliever can do, and there's illustrations of each one in the Scripture. But these are people who have talk without truth, who have profession without reality, and it won't make it and the judgment of God and listen to the profession that Jesus makes of them. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness, sin, lawlessness. Oh, they use his name freely. But for him, their name was unknown in a saving way. You know what's sad? Most of all of these who are outside is they die with a full eternal knowledge of what they could have had. The rich man who's in hell, not because he was rich, but because he was lost, is conscious forever of what he could have had. And my friend, you need to ask yourself, am I outside the kingdom that will bring me into the eternal kingdom we call heaven, or am I inside the kingdom? You don't want to be wrong on this. Well, I'm pretty sure. You don't want to be wrong. You need to be absolutely certain that you've met the living Christ. You say, well, what do I need to do? It can happen today just as fast as you can blink your eye, instantaneously someone can be saved.
because it's not earned. It's forgiveness that is received. But if you aren't willing to call your sin, sin, you have no need for a Savior. My wife and I were reading a Facebook page. Person's got Scripture all over it. But this person is living a wicked, immoral lifestyle. And they are justifying their wickedness on their Facebook page. Look, if you're not willing to call sin, sin, you have no need for a Savior. But if you will change your mind, the Bible calls that repentance, and call upon Christ, He will forgive you, and He'll do an inside job, and you will never be the same. He will give you the spiritual water that will satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. Now, some of you have met Christ, and you've experienced that living water, but you've listened to the ploy of the world that is under the energy of the evil one, and you're trying to find fulfillment in these other things, and my friend, they will never, ever satisfy. And if you really know Christ and you meet him in heaven, the Bible says you will shrink back in shame, and you will have deep regrets at the end of life that you did not invest it more wisely. Now, Father, we thank you for the revelation that you gave to us to change us, to make us more like Christ. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus can be saved. Help someone, Father, who's really not certain that heaven is their home. They've never seen the power of a birth from above. They are guilty of the same old, same old because their religion is external and it's never touched the human heart. Help them today to call upon Jesus. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help them in childlike faith on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, we know one of these days, maybe sooner than we realize, the clock will run out of time and the trumpet of God will sound the dead in Christ will come out of the graves. We who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air, and we will do no more evangelism. Help us to make as our purpose statement what drove the Son of God, for he said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Help us not to hide behind all kinds of spiritual activity that may be legitimate, but really doesn't focus on winning people to the Savior. So, Father, in this new week, it's a fresh week. Like Paul, we pray for open doors of opportunity for someone this week to speak with. In whatever capacity and way that you would choose to use us, we make ourselves available for the glory of Jesus. And in his holy name we pray, amen. To listen again to today's message, The Coming Heavenly Kingdom, from chapter 22 of the Revelation, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV70. 
We're making plans for two Search the Scriptures trips to Israel in the fourth quarter of 2021. If you've never been to Israel, or if you'd like to relive this amazing experience, visit our special website, stsisraeltour.com, where we have posted an online brochure and where we feature a recent presentation from Dr. Brogy, where he answers some of the most asked questions about these Holy Land trips. We hope you can join us, and if you'd like more information, just visit stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we begin the third from last message from our series of the Revelation, a study entitled, God's Last Call to be Saved. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>